Hello, my friends. Welcome back to the Naked Leadership Podcast. My name is Chad. Yet another week with Dan and Adrian. This week, we have a guest that I can't wait to introduce you to, Rabbi Steve Leader. Rabbi Steve Leader is the senior rabbi of Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles, California. He's also been named the top 10 most on the list of the top 10 most influential rabbis in America. Not once, but twice. What? This conversation is so great, and I cannot wait for you to dig in. I'm not even going to try to recap it, not going to give you any highlights, other than I will say this, that the rabbi has an amazing joke somewhere in this conversation, and I can't wait for you to hear that as well. So without further delay, I give you Rabbi Steve Leader. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Naked Leadership Podcast. My name is Chad. I'm with Dan and Adrian today, as usual. Gentlemen, how are you? Excellent. Thanks. Awesome. Good to be here. I am doing so well uh, as well. I'm so excited for our conversation today. We have Rabbi Steve Leader on, and there's so much to dive into. And typically, um, Rabbi, we you don't I don't usually do like an introduction of our guests. I let that I let leave that to you because you know what's important to you on the topic of leadership. And so, thank first off, thank you so much for being here with us. It's an honor, really an honor. I appreciate it. And would you, do you mind taking just a minute introducing yourself to us and the guests, just so we have some context around your work and the conversation we're going to have today? Yeah. Um, again, great to be with uh, all three of you today. Uh, I grew up in uh, a little suburb of Minneapolis called St. Louis Park. Uh, if you saw the Coen Brothers movie, A Serious Man, then you know everything you need to know about my childhood. Uh, those, those guys grew up about five blocks away from me. Um, and, and even though this was really in the middle of Minnesota, this one little suburb was, was like a little Jewish village surrounded, mm -hmm. you know, by, by Norwegians and Swedes and, and you know, Presbyterians. Um, but my little bubble there was almost exclusively uh, made up of, of Jewish families. I, I walked just on my street. I walked to the school bus stop every morning just from my street, you know, a hundred Jewish kids. Uh, and so that's the world in which I was raised um, culturally, religiously. Uh, the interesting thing about it too, though, is I also grew up in a very uh, blue collar family. My dad and my uncle owned a junkyard um, called Leader Brothers Metal. And I grew up working in the junkyard. I'm one of five. My parents got married at 17 and 18 and had five kids before they were 30. Uh, we, we lived a very, you know, middle working class to middle class life. There were seven of us in a three bedroom house with one, with one bathroom, but, you know, nobody went hungry. And uh, that was just how everyone in our neighborhood lived. Um, and I always uh, felt that if I could ever have a job where I had got to wear a suit and a tie, you know, <laughs> I would have made it. Um, and, and my parents did not go to college. They weren't academic in any way. My dad was one of the smartest people I've ever met, but he was not learned. 
also, I was the fourth of five and my parents were kind of done parenting by the time I rolled around. I think I was raised by wolves or something because they just weren't really, they weren't indifferent, but they just didn't know what was going on in my life. And my mother was so busy. My dad worked all the time. My mother was so busy just keeping us fed and clothed and, you know, our, our teeth taken care of uh, that anything we wanted to do, we had to, we had to handle ourselves. If I wanted to play hockey, I had to walk to the practice. I want to play baseball, I'd rode my bike. Um, and, and also my father was a very, and I wrote, I wrote a book called The Beauty of What Remains, which is about both um, the beauty of what death reveals about life and also more specifically what it revealed about my relationship with my father when he died, which was complex. Uh, but any creative pursuit, any creative pursuit was immediately dismissed as nonsense in my, in the ethos of my family. You want to be a writer? Waste of time. You want to be an actor? Waste of time. You want to be a musician? Waste of time. Uh, my father's conversation with me my junior year of college was, Steve, I see two choices for you when you graduate. You could go to law school and take over Leader Brothers, or you could not go to law school and take over Leader Brothers. Those were my two career paths in my father's mind. And he was very disappointed when I told him I wanted to become a rabbi. Now, the reason I wanted to become a rabbi was because, without my parents even realizing it, the one place where I could express myself creatively that was not summarily dismissed by them as meaningless was the synagogue. That's where I could go. That's where my poetry mattered. That's where my thoughts mattered. That's where there were people who were learned, who read books, who seemed to know something about the mystery of life that, that I didn't know and that no one in my neighborhood thought much about. And that is really, I think, who I am, is that I was so drawn to the, to the poetry, the music, the mystery, the, the, the esoteric knowledge of it all. Uh, and so I leaned into it from the time I was about 12 years old. I loved my bar mitzvah. Um, I, at, at 14, I got arrested for shoplifting Bob Dylan albums from Target. Uh, <laughs> yeah, at least you know what you're stealing. Yeah, I had some, I, at least I had good taste. <laughs> um, and I mean, he was the biggest Jew from Minnesota ever. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so I, uh, I was playing drums in a rock and roll band. My parents weren't really keeping their eye on me. I was smoking a lot of weed. And then this, this, uh, arrest kind of got my parents' attention and they went to see Rabbi Shapiro and Rabbi Shapiro said, Steve's a good kid. He's just bored. You need to change his peer group. You should send him to this Jewish summer camp in Wisconsin. And they did, and it changed my life forever. Um, I loved everything about it, everything. The music, the hippie counselors, uh, the, the pretty girls from Chicago with flowers in their hair, you know, it was the 70s. And it was the first time in my life I saw rabbis, young rabbis in t-shirts and shorts who could throw a baseball. And I thought to myself, wow, you can be a normal person and be a rabbi? Really? Really? Because my rabbis at home are these old, scary German guys, you know, with, with crooked yellow teeth and big robes on, and I, I couldn't relate. So that, that summer changed my life. Uh, from there, I went to Israel at 16, changed my life again. 
I went to college, Northwestern, studied writing because I knew that writing would be important in my career as a rabbi. I went right to rabbinical school and then right to Wilshire Boulevard Temple in Los Angeles, where I've been for 34 years. I was ordained with a class of 70, and I'm the only one left where I began. Everyone else has moved on to two or three or four pulpits because the rabbinate's kind of like free agency in baseball. You know, people kind of move around a lot. So I have this very rare opportunity to really be there for, for now, you know, two, almost three generations of people within my congregation. So I'm, I'm marrying people. I bar and bat mitzvah all the time. You know, I'm burying people I married. I'm doing baby namings for, for people who were in their twenties when I joined the temple are now the grandparents, you know? So that's been a very rich and rewarding experience. Uh, so a little bit about Wilshire Boulevard Temple, which makes it, I think, uh, unusual, actually unique. It's the only synagogue in the world that has three campuses and also owns and operates its own summer camps and conference center and has two elementary schools, two early childhood centers, and uh, actually three early childhood centers and uh, three you know, religious school, Sunday school operations. So we have about 1,700 kids in our school system. We have three campuses, two in West LA and one in the neighborhood called Koreatown in Los Angeles, very urban, historic, amazing uh, campus. And, um, you know, when I started, we had one. <laughs> um, so we've, we've grown a lot. The congregation has 2,700 families. So that's pretty well north of 10,000 people. And we're into a lot of interesting things. I like to think of the Wilshire Boulevard Temple as a holding company. And we operate several businesses. We operate elementary schools. We operate early childhood centers. We operate Sunday schools. We operate sleepaway camps. And we operate, and I'm very proud of this, uh, a social services center in Koreatown that is on our campus. Um, this is not bragging. This is just to give people a sense of order of magnitude. I made a decision in 2003 when the dome of the great sanctuary, the plaster started falling down on top of people because it, there was so much deferred maintenance that we had to double down in our urban presence. And the short story is that I was able to raise about $250 million from the congregation to develop the entire square block, to purchase and develop the entire square block in Koreatown, which is the most diverse council district in America, west of Brooklyn. And one of the things we built there is a social services center for our neighbors, because I said to the board, look, we're not gonna spend $250 million down here and pretend that our neighbors aren't poor, because they are. So we built something called the Carter Family Social Services Center, where we provide free food security, free dental care, free vision care, free legal aid, um, free mental health services, all in Korean, Spanish, and English uh, for our needy neighbors. Because I said, we need to be a part of this neighborhood, not apart from it. You know, we're building an oasis. We're not building a fortress here. Um, and we've really doubled down on that. And now the next thing, we're, actually, I'm so proud of this. We're gonna have a certificate of occupancy in about two weeks. We are finishing the last part, the last building of the master plan for that campus. 
which is an event center that's designed by Rem Coolhouse, Rem Coolhouse, the Pritzker Prize-winning architect, and his associate Shohei Shigematsu. And it is a mind-blowing, mind-blowing, modern building juxtaposed with the historic 1929 sanctuary. So it gives you this feeling like the Pyramid at the Louvre, this amazing juxtaposition, which is very rare in Los Angeles because in Los Angeles, old buildings tend to get torn down. <laughs> so it, it, the energy between the two buildings is extraordinary. And I was lucky enough to you know, be a part of this international competition among architects and be a judge on the committee. And it was an amazing experience. And uh, that's opening in a couple, uh, we'll have the certificate of occupancy in a couple of weeks. We're opening in January. So we really clear the COVID hurdle, we hope. And uh, the other news on the business side is we have just negotiated a successful merger with a synagogue in West Los Angeles in, in Brentwood, um, which is now a part of Wilshire Boulevard Temple. And I was just able to get that campus named and the early childhood center named there. So we have enough money to fix the place up because there's a lot of deferred maintenance. So that's kind of a, a long introduction, but it gives you a sense of the business side. The only other thing I would add is that I've written, I've written five books, published four. The fifth I just finished on my recent sabbatical and it'll be out in, they're saying in June of 22, but I think they're gonna move it up. And I focused a great deal on, I guess, what I would call the human condition in my writing. A friend of mine said to me once when I was hiking with him in Joshua Tree, he said, Steve, you know what your job is? You have a front row seat to life. And that's what I've mostly written about. Uh, the penultimate book was called, is called More Beautiful Than Before, How Suffering Transforms Us. And the basic thesis there is if you have to go through hell, don't come out empty handed. And I think that's a very important business concept also, is where is, where is the blessing in this curse? Uh, where's the growth? I think pain and pain is really the only teacher. I don't think we learn much from success at all. And the most recent book is called The Beauty of What Remains, which, which narrows the focus down to what is death and loss and grief really meant to teach us about life, about leading more meaningful and beautiful lives. You know, Kafka said the meaning of life is that it ends. <laughs> and and it's, really, it's really that simple and that profound. Um, so that's kind of an overview of, of, you know, to be a rabbi, you have to be good at four things. And, and I can be good at all four, but not at the same time. I can be good at any two of the four things. First, you have to take care of your temple members. You have to take care of them. I call that, you know, the hatching, matching, and dispatching, right? <laughs> All the, way. the weddings, the funerals, the baby namings, the bar mitzvahs, being there for them. You have to take care of them. The second is you have to take care of your staff. We have about 400 full-time employees, and they have lives and problems, too, and they need to be supported. Uh, the third is the preaching and the teaching. You know, the writing, the preaching, the teaching, being a thought leader within the congregation and the community. And if you have the opportunity in the larger world, which is something I'm leaning into now. And the last is fundraising. It's, it's a beast and it has to be fed. And I, I have to leverage my relationships with these three generations of people to, to get them to support the enterprise. Um, you know, we, we do have revenue streams, but they're enough to sustain us. They're not enough for us to grow. 
So philanthropy is the way we grow. Um, and, and, and so those are the four sort of legs of the table. And as I told you, I, I've learned to make peace with the fact that I can do any two of them really well at the same time, but I can't do all four. There you have it. Well, and Mary, most important, oh my goodness, I married Etsy for 35 years. We got engaged on our second date. I fell in love with her when she walked in the room. And we have two kids. Uh, uh, our son Aaron's 32, our daughter Hannah's 29. And I'm very proud of the fact that, you know, I came from Minnesota. They were both raised in LA, but they both love hockey and they both love the Minnesota Vikings. So I've done something right as a father. Thanks for taking us on that journey. That's uh there's so much there. I, I, one, one part of your story that really stuck out to me. And when we get the chance to have people like you leading at a level that you are, I'm always so interested to understand when you first at that summer camp, when you saw these rabbis that were relatable and started to think, well, maybe that's for me. I'm wondering what did that look like for you? Like what, what in your mind is that as you know, that age of a child, what did you think being a rabbi rabbi would entail? And I, and I assume, I mean, there's no way for us to really anticipate what it's actually going to be. So it's always fun for me to hear where people think they're going in entering some sort of leadership role and where they actually end up. Right. Uh, It's so true. I think that's true for law school, medical school, seminary. Most of what you learn, you learn when you're out in the field, you don't really learn it in classroom. And by the way, most of the people couldn't hold a job in the real world for more than 30 days if their life depended on it. So there's that issue. I think what happened that is I had that moment like I had with my wife Betsy when she walked in the room the first time. There was something that I just intuited and knew. And I think that we're all, if we're lucky, if we're lucky when we're 14, 15, 16, 20, however old, we have this moment where we meet someone or see something and we say internally, when I grow up, I wanna be like him. When I grow up, I wanna be like her. When I grow up, these are the kind of people I wanna spend my life with, right? This, I, this moves me in a way nothing else does. If you're lucky. And I was lucky. So I would say to you, I think what it was really was a 15-year-old boy who saw these people and said to himself, when I grow up, I want to be like that. Yeah, I totally, I totally get that. Um, I hadn't put it in that way, but I'm, you know, I'm been out in LA for 16 years now, I think. And it's because Somebody gave me a CD. Remember those? A compact. Oh, yeah. I was I was actually with a group of people that were we were in India to do like some philanthropic work, charitable work. And somebody gave me a CD of this guy named Irwin, and it was his this one sermon of his, the talk of his, speech of his. For those that aren't familiar, and I listened to him, and I said, I'm going to go find him and learn. So I want to see the world the way he sees it. I want to have the energy he has. I want to, that, that's an, that fit me at the time when I was whatever, 23. And I was like, okay, that guy, I don't know what's next, but I know that guy and that yeah. guy. And if he leads a church, I want to be a part of it. And I ended up moving out to LA and helping build the congregation in town called Mosaic for seven 
years or so of my life and zero regrets doing it. Right. Um, anyway, right. I, I love, there's that, for those of us that are, are blessed to have that moment of, you know, divine, I don't know. Well, I, here's what I think, here's the way I would describe it. And, and here's the problem and, and maybe it goes beyond the boundaries of this podcast. That's not always, that feeling isn't always about a profession or what your job is going to be, right? In other words, the, the way I put it is, I think most people, when you ask them, what did God make you good at? They know the answer. They know, but it's not always related to your, to, to making a living, right? Some, some people, God made them good at being a good friend, right? Some people, God made them good, you know, at, at being, at being a, a good sharer or a good, you ask any kid what they're good at, they can tell you, you know, I'm good at taking things apart. I'm good at putting things together, you know, um, and I think that that's the deeper truth that we have to pursue is to ask ourselves, what is it that God made us good at? And if you don't believe in God, say nature, say your DNA. I don't care what words you use, but what is my, what is my gift? What is my blessing? And then, you know, lean into it. I will say that, that good to great was fundamental in my thinking as a rabbi. Well, about institution building. I made my whole staff read it. I've read it three or four times. It's, it, it's the reason I re, we went to redevelop that campus because I asked myself, what, what are our unique assets and are we fully supporting them? And our unique asset was that sanctuary. It is the most beautiful and important sanctuary west of Manhattan. And it was completely unsupported. And I just knew if we could support it, renovate it, support it with schools, with parking, with security, with the social services center, with this event center, we would soar. Uh, so I think it's, a, it's about understanding your unique gift. And by the way, I, I hate it when people qualify unique. That's the English major in me. He's rather unique, quite unique. No, it's either unique or it isn't. And we all have something about us that is unique. And if we lean into that, then I, then I think success is, is inevitable. And by lean in, I also mean, of course, you have to work incredibly hard. You know, I, other rabbis had higher SAT scores and uh, can translate the Talmud better than I can. But I outwork them. And that's a big part of it. And I learned that scrubbing toilets and floors at Leader Brothers Metal. That was my graduate school. <laughs> and I was and I was five years old. And I'm not kidding. Yeah. Unique. I, I uh, really relating to what you said. I'm, it happened for me twice in my life. Once with my mother, who was a manic depressive schizophrenic. And I remember thinking there was just something in me that uh, I'm going to communicate with her. I'm not going to lose her. I don't care if she's off the edge or not. I, and I, I was convinced that she was speaking another language. And somebody sent me this article by a, uh, a psychiatrist who challenged the, the you know, kind of the status quo. He, he wrote a book called The Myth of Mental Illness. His name is Charles. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. And, um, it really profoundly impacted me. And I, le- I started to learn how to talk with people who were on the outskirts, who were uh, minim- you know, uh, marginalized or right. and, and who are conflicted. And, uh, and that led me to all kinds of really interesting research and, um, and, and ways to communicate and connect with people. There were all kinds of things I found in the scripture, all kinds of things I found uh, that connected. Interesting, like Kafka, I've read you know what and also i think you just reminded me of something else that i think is really important in terms of leadership because if you lean into whatever your gift or blessing is however you perceive that it also simultaneously means you can rid yourself of an awful lot of unproductive energy effort and work in areas where you are never 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 going to succeed. I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you a small, a small institutional example. You know, this is the point in, in, in good to great that most institutions put their best people on their biggest problem. And that's a huge mistake. You should put them on your biggest opportunity because yeah. your biggest problem is always going to be your biggest problem. Yeah. It's perennial, right? So, you know, I think there's this we talked about this a little bit on the other podcast, Adrian. There's this theological concept called via, negatio, via negationis, which means by way of the negative in Latin. And what it means is you can understand God by understanding what God is not, by what you take away, right? In other words, I think that leadership, I think that beauty, I think they are more dependent on what you remove than what you add. Right? And, and leaning into that gift I'll speak personally, has enabled me to just not even worry about a lot of other nonsense that I will never be good at. Never. So I hired a, I hired a chief of staff. I hired a superintendent for schools. I hired someone to just help me manage the other clergy because I'm a terrible supervisor. Terrible. And I'm a terrible coach, right? It's the Magic Johnson problem because I, I cannot... Magic Johnson was a great player, terrible coach. Why? First of all, he could not understand why other players couldn't just do what he could do. He, he just couldn't understand why, just throw it behind your back. What the hell? What's wrong with you? <laughs> and number one, and number two, he could not teach what he did intuitively. Yeah. He couldn't teach. So, I mean, this is a bold statement. I don't mean it. I don't mean to sound like some kind of arrogant, you know, person, but if you're the magic Johnson of your field, you've got to compensate for the weaknesses of being that kind of person by bringing in the right people around you. And I, the minute I did that, the minute I stopped pretending I was a good supervisor and hired somebody, the whole thing started to get better. Everything started getting better. And I, the and the the moment I let go of the patriarchal structure of senior rabbi as as father, mm-hmm. the minute I, I I let go of that and was honest with myself and said I don't want to be anyone's father. I have two children already. All of these things, everything I I I've gotten rid of has made the difference. Yeah. Well, there's, there is, hum, you don't have to, first off, uh, 
if, if you have if you have breakthroughs of arrogance on this podcast, you'll fit in really well. Second off is, uh, you know, this is a space in which uh, people are uh, own what you're great at here. Yeah. You know, and this yeah. is what I mean. Is I, I was just in a workshop this weekend, and that was my charge to them is like, don't do the. It's false humility when we act small. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, not yeah. I, I agree. I agree. You know, I understand. But it's. I, I'm, I'm it's mostly for the listeners. It's like yeah. people, people that are, if you like act small, not to offend anyone else, you're not actually being humble. Yeah. No, what no, you're I, saying is, I appreciate what you're saying, Adrian. I really do. And, and the issue is I am, I think I am sui generis in the rabbinate. Um, I think, I think most congregations are lucky if they have a senior rabbi who's good at maybe two of those four things. Yeah. And, you know, to have a five tool senior rabbi is pretty rare because I'm in a field, honestly, without a lot of talent because kids don't want to live the life I lead now. They don't want to work every weekend. They don't want to be on call 24 seven. They want to run hedge funds. They want to make movies, you know, they, <laughs> they, and I get it, you know, so I, I would, I think the, the point I think is, is, to, to accept what one is not skilled at sure. and, 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 and contract. I think there's a lot of creativity that comes when the leader contracts. I don't mean works less. I just mean make some room <laughs> right, for others. Uh, there's a whole theory of uh, Jewish mysticism. The Hebrew phrase, it seemed sum, it means contraction, that, that in order for the world to be created, God actually had to contract. Hmm. That's cool. cool. Not expand. Yeah, well, it's, it's, Kierkegaard talks about how in order for existence to be, we have to have boundaries. <laughs> That's what brings us into existence, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, so, and as a leader, I think these are, you know, and, and also I... I have to say there's something beautiful. I'm 61 years old and people ask me when COVID hit, oh, isn't this awful for you? This whole institution, you've got to lead it and raise money to keep it, keep it going and pivot. And my answer was, I'm glad the ball's in my hands. I, I, I've spent my life preparing for this. I'm, I'm 61, I'm, I'm still at the peak. I'm at the peak of my knowledge and experience and I still have enough energy, you know, to do it. To me, it felt like an epic call to lead. Epic. It's like, give me the ball. I give, give it to me. And I felt great about that. And I still feel great about it. Uh, and, I, I, and to be honest, I didn't want the ball in anyone else's hands. It was my responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's I love the Magic Johnson analogy because it, it really works in so many contexts. You know, even, even your previous point, which was as soon as Magic is coaching, he's not Magic anymore. That's right. Somebody else. That's right. Um, it's like I was Space Jam is obviously coming back to America or coming back to the world. And so that we're watching me and the kids are watching the previous Space Jam, which has Michael Jordan playing baseball, which is one of the most iconic failures of all time. Right. Bad idea, Mikey. Um, right. Go right. do what you're great at, sir. It takes you, you know, great. Go experiment, but then come on back, you know. Yeah. Um, but the, but even I love that point. It's like, you know, your, it takes humility also to 
do what's necessary. Yeah. Which is like what, you know, because you are the best guy to have the ball right now That's in right. this time. Because, what's needed at that moment. Exactly yeah, right. You know, That's you right. obviously, uh, uh, you know, the, 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 the four things that you mentioned, the container uh, over the overhang of it is living a life of vision is what you obviously do. It pours out of your, your you know, out of your mouth naturally. The yeah. why, why we must, what's possible, you know, yes. and, you know, I was stricken by um, maybe just because I feel it as well, even get emotional thinking about it. Like when you went to the synagogue, that's where your poetry worked. That's where your concerns right. worked. That's where your, you know, your, the, the type of inquiry you were in and troubled by as a young kid, they did that there. That's so right. You, and it is also, to be fair, where I mattered. Yes. Right. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because you said something in the beginning of the podcast that you were lucky to find what you're doing. But I, you know, I think we help our luck along, if you will. We help the blessing by, I know for me, it, I, I was marred by certain things that called me into, actually called out of me my gift. Like my mother's illness called out of me this, out of me came this intuitive longing. To, to just not, like, my family wanted to get away from it because it was so ugly, and I wanted to go to it, like you talked yes. about. Yes, yes. You and, know, I told you that book I wrote is called More Beautiful Than Before, How Suffering Transforms Us. Well, it gives me goosebumps because... And that suffering, you know, I'll, let me put it this way. Dostoevsky said his greatest fear was that his life would not be worthy of his suffering. Yeah. That's a that? very, Dostoevsky, that is a yeah. very powerful powerful idea yeah. right can you lead a life worthy Without of the suffering that you have endured so now the way i i see that as a rabbi yeah. in a more macro sense is can i create and lead an institution worthy worthy of the suffering jews have endured and the opportunity that america presents us with you know the the combination of capitalism freedom and Judaism has never existed in the world like it exists in America. And we are either going to use it as an excuse to disappear or create a renaissance. And I'm obviously on the let's create a renaissance team. Right? <laughs> and, and I say to the staff all the time, we can't do everything, but we can do anything. And to be blunt about the money part, the Jewish community is behind every freaking museum, the opera, the symphony, the hospital, the university. So I'm sitting down with these people and saying, what about your own? If you're, can you do one big one for the Jews? The opera is great. The Philharmonic's great. The hospital is important. But so, so is our destiny, our message to the world, our presence in the city. Do something. And you know what? They do. Um, and, and so I, I think this idea of being worthy of one's struggle is, is really something that can ennoble your life and ennoble your company, ennoble your family. And, and boy, what else could one really hope for? Yeah. And you know, my point is that a lot of people run from suffering. Yeah. 
that if if you know, I try to work with my children to turn into it because it's in the, it's usually in the suffering that your talents, your gifts, yes, the surface. Of they, course, of like course. Like you that. you guys, I don't know if we have time for this. You want to hear a funny joke about that? Oh yeah, I'd love to. Okay, so uh, I'm going to make it about nuns instead of rabbis because it'll have a more universal appeal. Okay, all right. All right, so there's this coming this into town. My world. Now you're coming into my world. All right, this town, this small village is on fire. I mean, it's just a raging fire, and the fire is so hot that all the fire engines and all the fire companies that came to battle the blaze they can't do they can't get close enough to do anything. So they just ring the fire, and they're sitting there watching the town burn. And all of a sudden, from the distance, screaming down the road, comes one single fire engine moving fast, fast, fast. It goes past the ring of other fire engines watching the town burn and finally slowly rolls to a stop right on Main Street, right in the middle of the blaze. And all of a sudden, all these nuns start jumping out of it like fleas on a dog, grabbing axes and hoses and ladders and fire extinguishers because it, it was the firefighters, volunteer firefighters from the nearby convent. And in 10 freaking minutes, the blaze is out and the town is saved. It's unbelievable. So the next week, the town throws a parade for, for the nuns. And at the end, the mayor of the town presents the mother superior with a check for $10,000 and as a thank you. And then a journalist says, mother superior, what are you going to do with the money? She says, the first thing I'm going to do is fix the brakes on that fucking truck. <laughs> it's a great joke but it's really about sometimes you find yourself in a fight you didn't ask for that's right and you know what you do you put out the fucking fire that was covid that was you with your mother and you know that's all of us at some point in life we're presented with this epic opportunity to lean into who we really are well makes it makes it obviously more, more approachable and i'm sure you do i mean you made five or six sports references here already, right? So it's kind yeah. of, uh, you know, pulling, yeah. which I, I get from you, even your uh, high level of approachability and you're quick. When I asked you, would you do this podcast? You said yes in like 10 seconds, you know, that level of um, you're, uh, you're prone to yes and prone to, it seems like really prone to fine language and the approach that is the most translatable across. I mean, you liked the kids in the shorts, right? That was That's the right. thing, like, you know, who's got a baseball in their hand and who speaks the human language. Well, and also in my job, you know, I teach uh, in the nursery school. I Zoom with the kindergartners once a week for half an hour. I teach the elderly. I, you know, I teach young parents. It, it's a congregation that is really, really heterogeneous, wow. uh, you know. Um, and so you really, if you're going to succeed in, a, in an environment like that, you have to be able to speak multiple languages, if yeah. you know what I mean. Well, that's what most leaders um, don't, I think they, they miss this point. And they might say, oh, that's a rabbi, or oh, that's a preacher, or oh, that's a something. Like, of course, he's got to be able to translate. They might even just throw that idea away. But they're missing out, I think, if they heard even your story as a, as a, as a challenge to them. It's do you, how, how adaptable are you? in your speaking style and how, you know, how many types of people can you connect with from the board of directors to the investors, to, that's the, right. team, to the, to the brand new person that just walks in. That's, that's right. And, and I would add 
without it being kabuki, right? With authenticity. Yes. I've been really lucky to, to meet a few presidents and spend some time with a few presidents, both sides of the aisle, Republican and Democratic. They're all gifted in that way. They're all incredibly gifted. You don't get to the top of that pile without being a gifted communicator. Yeah. And they're, you know, I watched one, I watched uh, talk to my 17 year old son. And then he had a chat with my wife and with me. Uh, and, and they were, it was, they were two different languages hmm. and both authentic. So, you know, what you're saying, I think is extremely important. And we all have to be sure, you know, as leaders, I think the authenticity part is really important. And look, I, I will say, because this is all a little bit too cheery, I think. Um, I do think that it's worth noting that I have not been without bitterness as a leader. Uh, and it's sort of that Magic Johnson syndrome. I mean, when, when you cannot understand why the people around you cannot just do what you do, it can be embittering. And it was for me for many years. I actually went to see a psychiatrist about this. I said, I feel like a well-paid babysitter. And he said to me, well, babies aren't bad. They're just babies. <laughs> like, not everyone is going to be like you and you need to honor who people are or they're going to feel disrespected and underperformed. That was an important moment for me. You know, I was much younger uh, and, and the maturity has helped. Um, but I, I, it, I really had to learn that other people don't have to be wrong for me to be right. And, and that, that people generally are doing their best. It's just a different best, a different way and a different best. And, and they all were very lucky. This is one of the good things about being a large, large institution. We can have role players. And, and that, again, we're, we're kind of circling is interesting around the whole, the whole same idea of leaning into whatever the gift or the blessing is that you intuitively know is yours. And, and not trying to expect people to be anything other than that. Because uh, that dissonance is very painful for people. Well, thank you. I mean, we're running out of time. And I wanted, we didn't even get to talking about death, which is one of my favorite <laughs> topics to talk about. Part two. Let's do part, part If you would, that would be amazing. You know what? Um, I think it's, let me tell you something interesting very quickly. I know you want to end. Just yesterday, a member of the temple sent me an article about wrestling with grief over the death of a family business. And he said to me, Steve, you should get into this world because there's a lot of deaths in business. Uh, so I, 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 you're closer to something important than you might realize. There's a lot of loss in business. There's a lot of death in business. It's just metaphorical, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. I, I, I interviewing a gal for a position the other day, and she came out of a really rough situation. The business didn't make it. And literally, I could see the trauma in her. Uh, right. It concerned me because she's going to be sent in a situation that's going to be similar to that. And if she's not prepared for that, it's just going to bury her. Yeah. Yeah. Unresolved grief is uh, is really worth looking at. So I, I think, Chad, there is a conversation to be had around what do we learn from loss and pain and, and, and even death of a business or death of an entity or death of an employee. Listen, my son's company 
one of their employees jumped off a building and, and died by suicide. And he asked me if I would come in and talk to the employees. Uh, you know, so there are a lot of ways in which this actually does apply. So, you know, the kind of money you guys are paying me, I'll come back and do a second one. <laughs> and, and even I just, I just got done having this conversation with a client right before we jumped on because he's leaving a company he's been at for seven years, moving into a different company. And that's a grief. He was like talking yes. about all these relationships. And I said, hey, man, by the way, all this, this is just called grief. You're going to take yeah. goodbye to people. People are not going to like you because you're leaving. You're not going to know what to do about that. People that you wish you could take with you, you can't for a certain that's amount right. of time. You know, this is just called grief. So you ought to, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in business, in real estate, we call it seller's remorse or buyer's remorse. And it, it is it is grief. You know, all life is separation. All life, all beginnings come from an ending. All of it. And I'm not trying to be facile or, or cute. It's really true. All right. Yes. When, in, you, our previous, in our previous conversation, Rabbi, I knew I knew, oh, my guys would love to talk to this guy. <laughs> A lot of the, you know, the 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 exploration of meaning and even of the willingness to go, we're in, we're in the death conversation all the time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and exploring, exploring the loss or even inside the context of a leader's life or a company's life, exploring what's missing. Right. And, you know, to your client, Adrian, can he think of that as, as an era of his yeah. life, right? Yeah. With gratitude, like the college era, right? The dating era, the, it's an era and it's beautiful that it happened and it's and and every era has its ending which leads to the next era i think that's a, a healthy way to think about transitions some gratitude rather than only with a sense of diminution or loss yeah you're our kind of guy thank you man <laughs> thanks guys great to talk to you today thanks everybody bye-bye Well, my friends, thank you so much for listening to yet another conversation on the Naked Leadership Podcast. Your listenership and commitment to the podcast means the world to us. If this podcast or these conversations has helped helped or inspired you in any way, would you mind going to Apple Podcasts and leaving a five-star rating and a glowing review? This helps us grow the movement and reach more leaders and teams. Finally, the greatest compliment that you can give us is sharing the podcast with your teams and the other leaders in your life. Until next week, bye-bye everybody.